welcome listeners to the Thundercast. I am Connor Sanders, your host here of SCU's premier sports podcast. I'm here recording after what was a busy week in SCU sports and just a busy week in general. As the whole Antonio Brown situation went on last week. I mean, that dude, he's either the smartest person in the world or just the craziest. I don't know where I I fall on that spectrum. I'm pretty sure that he did it on purpose, which is just like some like Ocean's 13 level of masterminding that he let his feet get burned. He sat in the cryo chamber with such conviction that he let his feet burn. He let his feet burn. He experienced the pain of frostbite just so he wouldn't have to play for John Gruden. And if that isn't indication enough as to why you shouldn't cheer for the Raiders when they move to Las Vegas. I don't know what else is because not even Antonio Brown wants to be around that team. So looking ahead this week, we're going to talk a little bit about SCU football and their result against you and I and looking forward to Stephen F. Austin. SCU volleyball also on tap as they continue their hot start. SCU soccer as well. And then my one thing at the end of this podcast, I'm going to talk a little bit about esports especially with when it relates to the Olympics. So let's go ahead and get started by not talking about any of those things and focusing instead on the NBA's most recent update to their uh, athletic uniform code. I don't know what it's called, <laughs> if there is such a dress code, but uh, basically here's the gist of it. Adrian Wojnarowski reported last week, you know, the most plugged in and connected reporter in basketball right now between him and Shams. And uh, he literally had to tweet out that, quote, Ninja headwear has been banned from the uniform of NBA players. If you don't understand how ridiculous this is, let me just walk you through it. Ninja headwear. When I say that phrase, what do you think of? I'm thinking like Ninja Gaiden. I'm thinking like Kill Bill kind of stuff, some cool ninja gear. But what they're talking about is just these like headbands that a bunch of NBA players wore last year. And the only thing that makes them different from other headbands is that they have the little like tassels on the end because you tie them on your head instead of having them like suction cup to your head with that weird sweatband fabric. And somebody was like, you know what? That's not okay. This is just, it's not going to work. We can't do this anymore. You know that whole, uh, you know, player empowerment era and how teams can just lose their best players just because the player doesn't want to be there anymore. You know what? Let's not address any of those. Let's just worry first about ninja headwear. Let's make sure we cover our bases on the easy things first, and then we'll come back to tampering. (laughs) So my favorite part about this is that Adam Silver had to meet with other people and say, hey guys, where do we stand on ninja headwear? (laughs) Ninja headwear, dude, can you believe this? Um, Blake Griffin tweeted about the whole ninja headwear situation and said somebody had to, in a press release, type out, the NBA is outlawing ninja headwear, dude. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Dude, this is incredible. Like, did somebody just watch 
the NBA and thought, you know what, these headwear, these ninja headbands, they're dangerous. <laughs> Dude, imagine being like, oh my gosh, that guy's ankle tape, dangerous. Watch out for him. What are you talking about, man? This is incredible. So do you think that Adam Silver was just like watching a game and thought, you know what, that could get caught? The little tassels at the end of the headband could get caught and somebody could get hurt. <laughs> so he had to outlaw ninja headwear. Um, I wonder if just like this was the last commissioner move of David Stern. And he's like just watching, you know, like a Sixers versus Bucks game some night and was like, you know what, that Jimmy Butler, too much of a thug <laughs> with his ninja headband. Um, I won't stand for it. I just simply will not stand for such atrocities. This is a guy that told Allen Iverson he couldn't wear cool clothes. And now <laughs> they're outlawing ninja headwear, dude. Why? Why? Who, who was like, you know what? The NBA has a lot of potential, doing really well. But we got to fix ninja headwear. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right. I think that's enough ninja headwear talk. Let's talk about SU football. <laughs> As we seamlessly transition from the goofiest press release I've ever read to one of the uh, more disappointing performances from Coach Warren's side. So before we talk about this, we should establish that, I mean, Northern Illinois is basically an FBS school. They're number 11 in the FCS rankings. Um, having watched UNLV play and having watched UNI play, I think that they're on a pretty similar level. And last week, you know, Northern Illinois, excuse me, Northern Iowa, I'm going to do that 100 times because they're, they should both just be called UNI or NIU, but they're different and they're the same thing in my head, which means that I'm gonna get confused. And if I get them confused, then just bear with me. So Northern Iowa, they took Iowa State to triple overtime and really should have won that game. They should have beat Iowa State. And they were number 18 coming into the season, but they played so well against Iowa State that they got bumped up to number 11. So they're good. It's not like we went out and laid an egg against like northern colorado or something like we struggled against a very good opponent it's hard to judge the entire season it's hard to judge the entire season based on just one result especially against a team as talented as northern iowa was you saw especially among the receiving core of northern iowa you could tell they were just faster than us they were more athletic on the edges their quarterback made some really really nice plays and above all their offensive line was really really skilled so we weren't able to generate very much pressure which led to the result that we had we ended up losing 34 14 but the game was over by halftime we were down 24 to nothing heading into the half so SU really struggled to get going early um and that's kind of been the theme of this Thunderbird team even looking back to last season we've really struggled to get going in the first half um I don't remember exactly the stat, but we had been outscored something like 117 to like 14 in first quarters. Um, and that streak continued as they jumped out to a 24 nothing lead headed into the half. Um, Coach Warren gave a little quote in his press conference after the game. He said, we can't beat ourselves. SU head coach Demario Warren said, we've got to make sure that we're being disciplined. And when we're moving the football, 
But once we get moving, we usually get a penalty and end up behind the sticks. And you can't recover from that, especially on the road. Coach Warren's right. Um, discipline was something that he talked a lot about last season. And it's something that's still a theme within the camp this season. Those little things in the margins, in the edges, really do make a difference. And SU has not been capable in producing and in winning those individual battles that lead to offensive success, right? So we'll do the good, the bad, and the up in the air. That's kind of how we'll approach this. So the good, Lance Lawson, man. Lance Lawson is really good. Like one of the most skilled players on the team, I'd say. He's so shifty. When he gets the ball on a reverse or on a little screen pass or a little out route, he's going to get six yards or more every time. It's just getting the ball in his hands is really difficult um, because, you know, defenses can key in on him a little more. But I love watching him play in the slot. I love the little reverses and bubble screens and opportunities to get him the ball, especially with how much the running game has struggled in these first two outings. Short passes and easy completions for Helbig will make a huge difference looking um, ahead to the rest of the season. I think he's probably our most skilled offensive option right now. Um, and he should get as many touches as Coach Waltershade can generate for him because he's that skilled. He's that shifty in open space and has really good vision. So really impressed with what I saw from Lance Lawson over the last two games, as well as on the outside, Carlos Baker and Isaiah Diego Williams, our beloved Devo, still have room to improve, but they've shown at least that they can stretch the defense and that they need to be respected. Some of the completions haven't landed yet, and a lot of that stuff comes with chemistry, and Chris Helbig still very early on in his career, um, especially since Baker and Diego Williams really didn't have a huge role in the team last season. So it's discouraging that we weren't able to connect on a lot of long passes against Northern Iowa, but it is encouraging knowing that we do have some talented options at skill positions. I mean, James Falila is a beast. He's three yards in a cloud of dust as there ever was, like... He is Mr. Inside, and he's good in those short yard situations. The issue is that with Jay Green and Karis Davis not being around the team so far, not being able to play just yet, you know, Lance Lawson has been the majority, um, taking the majority of those op opportunities to get outside. So Lawson, really impressed with him. So the, the skill positions at least are talented as well. Nilo Tukolo, starting middle linebacker, is a beast. The Fresno tr State transfer led the team in tackles again. He had six. I really love watching him play. He's got a lot of the defensive qualities that made Chinedo Ohananu so good at SUU. He just reads the game really well. He's really fast in his reads. Um, just an aggressive tackler. like Not afraid to get in the bunch. Not afraid to make a play. So I was really impressed with how he played. Uh in Cedar Falls this weekend. And I'd say the offense found a pretty solid rhythm towards the end of the game. I mean, scored two touchdowns in the second half. Both of them were hell big runs, which is also encouraging. He's able to get out of the pocket and make plays with his feet. That makes him one of the most versatile QBs, I think, in the conference. Um, so you can tell when the offense gets into a rhythm and they can start making plays, they're really good. You can tell that when the breaks happen, like when penalties happen and the ball comes back, then our offense stalls 
and it's really hard to get going again. But we we can tell in more manageable situations when Chris Helbig is able to get into a rhythm, the offense looks good. So that's encouraging looking forward this weekend against Stephen F. Austin, who lost to a Division II school earlier on. So interesting to watch that there. Let's move on to the bad. Um, there was a lot of bad things that happened in this game and in the UNLP game. Just things that we knew before the season were going to be a struggle. The first is the offensive line, who gave up three sacks again. And Helbig seemed like he was constantly under pressure. Even if he wasn't getting sacked or hurried, he had to move around. He had to be cautious and careful. So really hoping that the offensive line can improve. Zach Larson is great. But other than that, man, it's, it hasn't been the production that I think Coach Warren's hoping for from that unit. They have to protect Helbig better. And they have to open up some lanes in the running game because there just isn't much for Falila to take advantage of. Like, yes, he can use his strength to break a tackle, but he's not going to, you know, juke the whole team. He's just not that kind of running back. He wants to get the ball and head north and south, and that's a valuable asset for the team. But when the offensive line isn't providing gaps for him, there's not much he can do. It's not entirely his fault, and it's not entirely on the offensive line. But they need to work together to do better another bad thing we made ESPN but for the wrong reason our secondary struggled a lot and you know ESPN tweeted out I think it was on Instagram actually the play I think it was Isaiah West and caught a long pass was tackled but didn't hit the ground and stayed on his feet and ran in I think it was our first touchdown um it's bad we got beat over the top a lot in this game the secondary has room to improve because there's a lot of really quality players in that unit, but it's not just on the secondary. It's really dependent on the defensive line. It's the same thing we were talking about last season. If the defensive line can't generate pressure on the quarterback, the secondary stands no chance. It's as simple as that in my eyes. There's just, they're talented players in the secondary. They are skilled. They have good instincts, but you just can't expect them to do all of that by themselves. So the defensive line is priority number one, most definitely. So, the last bad thing, the rushing yards need to improve. Establishing the run is really, really hard. And the penalties just killed SUU, man. Nine penalties for 74 yards. That's really, really tough to overcome. So, Coach Warren talking about discipline once again. Um, I just don't know how far discipline can take this team. I mean... Eventually, they have to clean up these little mistakes because they just can't compete against high-level teams with these kinds of mistakes nagging at them. So we'll see how Coach Warren manages that. And the last thing is just the long snapping, man. We can't have long snapping mistakes every game. Against UNLV, the long snapper two-hopped the ball to Manny Burrs. And, of course, you know, he wasn't able to get the punt away. And then this time, we gave up uh, nearly a safety and then a touchdown because of another bad snap. Listen, long snapping has to be the least of Coach Warren's worries right now, man. This team needs attention elsewhere. You cannot be surrounding plays like that on special teams. So I'm sure Coach Warren will be drilling them on that this week. And looking ahead to Stephen F. Watson, I think the most encouraging signs from last week and the things that are most up in the air for this team is that Helbig still has room to improve. You got to remember, he's still knocking the rust off. He only played like three and a half games last season when you think about it and he went down he was injured he 
lost an entire season, that's a traumatic experience for anybody, especially for somebody who worked as hard as they did to get the job like Chris Helbig did. So just remember, he's played like five and a half games at this level so far, and three of those have been against FBS opponents between UNLV this season, Arizona last season, and Oregon State last season. He's played against high-level competition that nobody expected him to beat, right? Um, and then you and I, also a very talented team. They almost beat Iowa State. I'd say they're maybe low FBS level school. So Helbig has played against really tough opponents. We haven't seen him against just average to above average teams yet or even below average. So we'll see. He only really played that game against North Alabama and a half against Northern Arizona um, against just traditional FCS level play. So really a lot of room to improve. And we always say that there's room to improve, but I think Helbig is good enough not only to have room to improve, but to take advantage of that room and get better as the season goes along. He just needs to get more comfortable. He trusts in his team. He's going to take some hits, but if he can get to that rhythm, like we mentioned, he's going to be really hard to stop because he's so mobile and because he's so versatile um, in the plays you can call for him. And also, the defense improved last week. I mean, only giving up 34 after giving up, I think it was 56 against UNLV. That's an improvement. It's not pretty... It's not encouraging to know that the defense still struggled, but it is encouraging to know that at least we're getting better. At least we're improving each game. The, the improvements aren't going to come all at once. We're not going to start shutting people out next week, right? It's going to be an incremental thing. And I think Stephen F. Austin presents the easiest chance for SU to, to win this season. So in Stephen F. Austin's first game, they got crushed by Baylor, of course, right? And then they lose to Tarleton State, which doesn't even have a logo on Google yet. So Division II team handling Stephen F. Austin pretty easily. Encouraging for the Thunderbirds, um, but still difficult. It's You can't assume you're going to beat anybody, especially with the results SU has had over the last 13 games or so. So let's go ahead and move on. SU Volleyball. Had one heck of a weekend. Their fast start continues. They're 5-1 and one right now. The Thunderbird Classic was held here in Cedar City this last weekend. And SU went 2-1. and one. So continuing with their successful start, they swept. Well, they didn't sweep, but they went 3-0 and oh in Logan to start the season at the Utah State Invitational. Now they're 5-1, and one, but at what cost? Because in that tournament, starting setter Alexis Averitt, um, went down with some kind of injury. I was at the game. It looked like she was holding her shoulder, shoulder, and then towards the end of the game, I did see her on the bench with her shoulder in a sling. Um, not sure what that means for the rest of her season, but I know that she's kind of had nagging pain in her shoulder. So she went down pretty early on in the tournament in uh, against St. Mary's, I believe in the first or second set. But the 5'4 freshman, Las Vegas native, Shade Cintron, came in and played really well against St. Mary's. Unfortunately, in the fifth set, she also went down with injury. So, Corinne Peterson stepped in. And actually, Coach Hoyer did something really interesting where he had two liberos in. He had, you know, Mayano Waters and Sarah Gasper, and then subbed in an extra middle blocker in for the setter spot so that they could try and just block the attack before it even came over, try and just circumvent the setting. But then when it did came over, Gasper would set... Um, depending on the situation. It worked against St. Against Mary's because that hap- uh, Cintron's injury happened in the fifth set with about like eight points left to win. 
and he subbed on Reagan Ashby. She picked up a block in her first point, and then a few points later, she scored on an outside swing. And then Krim Peterson filled in um, on the next day. So SU picked up that 3-2 win against St. Mary's, um, jumped out to a really fast start, gave a couple of sets away in the middle, but recovered and won in the fifth set. And then Middle Tennessee State just didn't really present the challenge that the other teams that they've faced so far this season have. Uh, they just weren't very skilled, and SU took advantage, which was good for Corinne Peterson to get some reps against some kind of low-level play. But it showed against Boise State how difficult it is for not only Corinne Peterson but for the rest of the team to score against high-level competition. So Boise's really good. Um, they had a bunch of skilled players like the kind of skilled players that don't need perfect sets. They don't need open court to score. Um, and our SEU has players like that. I think Shannon Webb and Stacey Hone are really versatile. But Krim Peterson struggled a little bit to get the distribution going. And the first two sets, SU kept it close. They went out to fast starts but couldn't keep the momentum. And I think Boise kind of just figured them out towards the end as in the third set. Uh, Boise just ran away and were able to sweep the Thunderbirds. Disappointing for sure for Coach Hoyer's side, but encouraging in the sense that this is the best start the team's ever had. Really disappointing to lose the setters, but to know that Krim Peterson, who is just a walk-on, sophomore walk-on, can fill in and can play well um, for stretches. So it's it's really tough to say what the rest of this season looks like for the Thunderbirds without knowing what their setting situation is going to look like. Because setting is quietly the most important position in volleyball, I'd say. Defenses that can read the setter are really hard to score against. And that showed against Boise because SU was getting blocked a lot because they knew where the ball was heading. And that has a lot to do with the setter in the way that they disguise where the ball is headed. So if you position your body and are able to trick the defense with where the set is going, it's much easier to score. Peterson doesn't really have that yet. Um, Cintron, I think, does a really good job of that. Um, despite her her height, she's very good around the net. She's won a couple jousts against St. Mary's, and she's just a very capable setter. Hopefully she returns soon. If not, Peterson will have to shoulder the duties because they are in Florida this weekend at the Florida Atlantic University Owls Classic. Um, they've got some good opponents that they'll be facing there. They'll play Bethane Cookman, FAU, and Boston College. Boston College is very, very good. So this is a huge test to see if the start of the season was just kind of a fluke or kind of a, a matter of circumstance or if this team is really talented enough to win against high-level competition. It's hard to say without knowing the setter situation, but I think that on the outsides and in the middle, SU is talented enough to compete. Shannon Webb is great. She's going to get a lot of targets. She's going to have to score a lot of different ways. I think she's good enough to shoulder that burden. And then Stacey Hone on the opposite side can hit the ball with a lot of power, and she generates a lot of topspin. So Hone was named to the all-tournament team at the Thunderbird Classic, as well as Katie Montgomery, the middle hitter, who I think needs to get more targets. I just think that the middle of the court is underused so far between Katie Montgomery and Mackenzie Dowell. A lot of room to improve um, in just setting the middle and taking the free points. Hone and Montgomery, were, like I said, named to the all-tournament team. And I think 
between them and Webb, really the the bulk of the attack should come through those three players along with Dowell and Thea Leatawa, who's very skilled in passing, not really known for her swinging and for her, um, you know, play around the net, but still very talented player, very skilled um, in her ability to find open spots in the defense. So encouraging to be 5-1, and one for, to have the best start since 2015, like we mentioned, but still a long way to go for Coach Hoyer's side. Now let's look at SU soccer. The women's soccer team struggling early on to score goals. Um, dating back to last season, they have gone seven straight games now without scoring on offense. That's a really frustrating statistic, but it's also kind of indicative of the issues within the program. Not within the program in the sense, but more of this is the team's main thing that they need to fix is just scoring the ball. So generating chances has been very difficult. They've played against good competition, um, but they only have five shots on goal so far this season. Um, that's only five chances to score because every other shot is good of a chance as it is. If it's not on target, it, it has no chance of scoring. Even if there's no goalie and you're wide open at like five yards away, if you can't get it on frame, it's not even a chance that you're going to, be able to win the game and so this really comes down to Mackenzie Lawrence Lawrence is a really good center forward she was second or excuse me she was tied for third in the big sky in goal scored last season but she hasn't had a lot of opportunities and when she has had opportunities she hasn't been able to convert yet against Cal Baptist last week um, in Cedar City she played pretty well I think she had some opportunities she had a couple of chip shots that just didn't land on frame um but she's not gonna get a lot of chances so she's gonna have to be efficient in her chances and that's what made her so special last season she scored seven goals on 14 shots on goal i believe which is just a crazy level of efficiency like taking her chances when they sprout up is going to be key um mostly because the middle the midfield for this team is just so inexperienced you look at you know jalen barton um, Amberly Hastings, Gigi Pagani, all are freshmen, and they're really the bulk of the attacking midfield. Pagani plays on the wing, so technically you can call her a winger, but in terms of getting the ball from the defense to Lawrence, SU ends up resorting to just kicking the ball towards her and hoping that she can get to it. That's got to change. Um, Hastings and Barton need to be able to connect with the ball a little more and connect with Lawrence, you know, receive passes from Lawrence get some build-up play, get some some combination play so they can start driving forward and start taking advantage um, of the holes in the defense that they're able to create. The defense, I think, is good. I think that Quincy Pfeffer is very talented. She's got all the elements you'd want of a defender. She's knows when to challenge. She's big and tall. She wins a lot of headers. Bree Sims, who's played center back early on for this team, also very fast little undersized, but she's really smart and picks her spots well. And then on the outside, Katie Lule and Amelia Powell's daughter have looked good. Um, Lule struggled a little bit with two-on-one opportunities against Cal Baptist. They got a lot of crosses in from her side, but it's going to come with time. She's just a freshman as well, and Powell's daughter is just a freshman um, from Iceland. So I don't think that the defense is bad. I think that the issue is the defense has too much to do. Much like SU football's defense, 
Um, you can't point to a specific group and say that this is the problem because Bri Aldridge is a great keeper. She led the league in saves and almost had a big sky record for saves last season. The issue is, is that SGU doesn't possess the ball for long enough. Like when we get on the ball, when we actually get to pass around a little bit, it's hard to keep it. And so we end up either hoofing it forward towards Lawrence or turning it over. And that's why the defense struggles is because they're pinned in their so own half so much and they have to defend for such long periods of time, eventually they're going to score. There's nothing they can do. They can try and pass around and try and, you know, keep defending and keep forcing opponents to the side and forcing in bad crosses. But eventually you just give up so many chances and you're defending for so long that the opponent's going to break through. So I think Lawrence could stand to come and receive the ball um, farther back more. And just if SU can possess the ball and not turn it over, then that relieves so much pressure on the defense and it gives them chances going forward. One thing Coach Thompson um, likes to do is to just keep the ball back and let the kind of outside midfielders run with it and try and find space. I think that they should have 11 on their side of the defensive field and try and find Lawrence and try and have Barton and Hastings run off of Lawrence to get in behind and hold the ball for a little bit longer just so that the, d the defense has a chance to reset and take a breath because defending for 90 minutes is so frustrating and it's so taxing to try and track runners and try and make sure that every touch you make is a good one because one bad touch will cost you. And if that one bad touch, like we saw against Cal Baptist, Brie Aldridge kind of muffed a save and that was the difference of the game. So at this level, keeping the ball, using it wisely is the most important thing. It's the most important thing in soccer. It's also the most difficult thing to do well. So I'm saying it like, oh, you just pass the ball better. That's not that easy. But I think that because the midfielders are so young, this team has potential to be great two or three years from now. But Coach Thompson has to develop those important skills that will lead to a more successful unit looking forward. Like I said, Pagani, Hastings, Barton, Lule, Pal's daughter, they are all freshmen and they are all starting. And Quincy Pfeffer is only a sophomore. Aldridge is only, a, I think she's only a sophomore. This is a, a talented core, and this year's probably going to be another bumpy road, but developing the skills that will make them into a great team in the future really has to be the priority. So as they travel to Wyoming on Friday at 4, it's hard to say whether they'll win or not. But that doesn't matter at this point. I think what really matters is looking ahead of conference play, getting confidence for your midfielders, and just breaking the duck, man. Seven games without scoring is tough. I think once the first goal comes in, if Lawrence is able to score on a half chance or whatever, then I think that the offense will start to flow more. The stress will kind of leave the team. But they just haven't been able to find the back of the net yet, and it's hard to explain why. It's hard to rationalize that. But once they do, I think that that will kind of take some of the pressure off and Coach Thompson will be willing to m throw more numbers forward and try and score with a bit more potent energy. So that is SU Soccer, the last topic of the Thundercast. Before I go on, next week I'm going to start answering some of the questions. I already got some good ones. Make sure to email sports at sunews.net. I will answer your questions, whatever they are. Um, the last topic today 
Esports Observer wrote an article about how Rocket League and Street Fighter V will have a role in the 2020 Olympics in Japan. So this is huge. Um, the inclusion is not that they are in the Olympics. Like Rocket League and Street Fighter will not be played in the Olympics. They will play in a Olympic-adjacent tournament that's also sponsored by the International Olympics Committee. So basically this tournament will go on right before the start of the Olympics. I think the Olympics start like July or June 10th or something. And the tournament will go three days before and then will end the day of opening ceremony. So Rocket League, which has a really good following. I write about Rocket League. I love Rocket League. It's my favorite esport. Um, has a lot of potential to grow because it's not a violent video game and because it's so easy to follow. It's just car soccer, but it's insanely exciting in five-minute increments, and it's really fun to watch. So it has the potential to be an Olympic sport. And I remember um, when I s- talked to uh, the commissioner of WSOE, who's pretty plugged into the esports scene, he thinks that Rocket League has the best chance of becoming the first Olympic esport, and now it is. Between that and Street Fighter V, who, I mean, fighting games really may be the origin of esports, if you think about it. I mean, Super Smash Brothers definitely took things to a different level, and the way that Melee and the new one are played is really incredible. They're not the biggest esports in the world, but they're the easiest to market, and they're, I think, the least violent options um, that you can have available, and they're just super easy to follow. Street Fighter has massive health bars. You can see who is winning and who is losing. It's really easy to tell. Rocket League literally is just car soccer, except for you can fly around and do super cool stuff. Um, the interesting thing as well about Rocket League is that it's a club-based sport, but the Olympics will be a national-based thing. So there will be a team of Americans, a team of Europeans, a team of, you know, whatever. That's really interesting because Rocket League hasn't been played in that kind of format very often before. And you could have a team from North America, maybe a team from the United States, that has three great players that have never played together that could lose to just a regular team of three players that has played together and has chemistry. So it's a really interesting opportunity, not only for the esports that are involved, but for the future of sporting in our country and in our world. I see this Rocket League opportunity as kind of a test run. If this goes well, if Rocket League and Street Fighter V are well-viewed and well-perceived, then I think that esports has a future in the Olympics. In 2020, in Tokyo, there will be esports. They will be Olympic-adjacent. They won't be part of the actual medal count and things like that. But they will be a t- there will be a $250,000 prize pool on the line, and... They will be playing in Tokyo in an Olympic-adjacent event, which is huge for the future of sporting because nothing like that has happened thus far. There's a very strange relationship that exists between sports and esports. Most sporting athletes do not view esports as athletics or even as sport. They just see them as games. And I totally get that because the injury for risk, the risk of injury, excuse me, and traditional athletics is much higher and the training and things is different but it's basically equal the amount of time a regular athlete dedicates to their sport is pretty similar to what an esports athlete dedicates to their game so if 
esports find a niche and able and are able to latch on as an Olympic event, we might see more and more esports make the venture into Olympics, and they might just become part of the mainstream as a whole. It's getting closer and closer. Um, people that don't really care about esports must, at least at this point, be familiar with the concept, right? And now if they can just see it in practice and they can see it as part of something larger like the Olympics, like if I want to watch Rocket League, I have to seek out Rocket League and I know where to go to watch it. But if Rocket League is just on NBC, somebody could see that and somebody could say, hey, you know what? This actually is viable. This is fun to watch. This is entertaining. And it has the kind of potential to make, you know, a big impact in the Olympic scene. It's just like they tried out 3v3 basketball last year or last Olympics. They can try new things. They can see what works, what doesn't. But the fact that Rocket League and Street Fighter are even getting a chance is monumental, especially in the society where we worship athletics as much as we do. Non-traditional people, non-traditional athletes, like esports athletes, become role models for so many and are easy to connect to for so many people that don't usually watch the Olympics. And that's where the interesting relationship between esports and traditional sports begins because a lot of esports people don't care about sports and they don't want sporting attention, if that makes sense. They don't want the mainstream to be coming and trying to take over uh, their market or their opportunity. They, they don't want esports to be viewed as the way to save the Olympics because viewership has been down in recent years. They want esports to be accepted and acknowledged as the competitive atmosphere that it is and not some kind of gimmick to try and rescue, you know, the Olympics or whatever it may be. So that's my piece. I'm excited for Rocket League to be in the Olympics. I love watching Rocket League. And I'm really excited for this weekend in SCU sports. Like I said, soccer heading to Wyoming, heading to Laramie on Friday. Um, SU volleyball Thursday night, Friday. And Saturday, we'll be in Boca Raton, Florida for the FAU Classic. And then football in a big matchup, the first home matchup of the season against Stephen F. Austin, hoping to get their first win. Make sure you tune in. Make sure you follow SU Sports. Follow me on Twitter. I'm just at Connor S. Sanders on Twitter. And email me any of your questions for next week's at sports at SUnews.net. Thank you for listening to the Thundercast. I'm Connor Sanders. And we will see you next week here on the Thundercast.